This morning's first scripture will be read from Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us all exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Okay, this second uh, reading will be read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear the threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Finally, that's how Peter starts this part of his letter today that we're looking at. As a minister, you learn pretty quickly not to say that word too soon. You know, it gives people false hope. And they get a bit cranky if you say finally and then you go on for another 10 minutes. But did Peter miss that lesson somehow? Because he says finally and then he goes on for a few more chapters. Well, what Peter's doing here is not trying unsuccessfully to bring his letter to an end. He's given us the final point to what he's been saying since chapter 2. Last week, you might remember that Paul Harrington walked us through three case studies. But behind all three of those case studies was the one principle. And we see it in chapter 2, verse 11. Let me remind you of it. Peter writes, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The principle that Peter gives to them and to us, is this. As people who belong to God live such good lives among the people we live amongst that they will see how great God is. Peter tells us in these verses that we're not to just completely blend in with those around us. We're foreigners. We're expats of God's kingdom. So we've got to abstain from sinful desires whether our friends or or family or workmates like it or not, we are to be different. But in being different, we're to live such good lives that it's undeniable that we're on about what's good for everyone. And we're doing this not so that we look good, but so God is seen for who He is. Ultimately, we'd love it if um, our way of living caused people to stop and wonder who is this God that we love and we live for. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, can I just say right up front that we know that we fail at this. And sadly, we know that we'll fail at this again in the future. This isn't easy stuff, is it? We're not called to live out our culture's definition of good lives. We're not even called to live out our own definition of good lives or some religious definition. We're called to live out God's definition of good lives as God's people loved by Him, chosen to be His family, His children. We're called to be good like Him. And that brings a few surprises. And this brings us to our first point today, 
We are called to do good no matter what. Have a look at verse 8. Peter writes, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. How do you live a good life among people who don't follow Jesus? Well, you live a good life among other believers. It makes sense though, doesn't it? You know, it hardly shows how good God is if we're a dysfunctional family here. You know, imagine it. Come be a part of God's family where we hate each other, where we stab each other in the back, where people are judgmental and self-righteous and harsh. A family like that's not going to glorify God. A family like that doesn't make him look good. It makes him sound like the Godfather. Instead, when we belong to God's family, we belong to each other. And this community, this nation, this holy nation, this family, when it's functional, is, is actually an amazing demonstration of just how good God is. Look at the characteristics of God's family in verse 8. Like-minded. We're in sync with each other. There's harmony. Together we're resolved to live good lives as God's people. Sympathetic. You know, when you try to tell someone your problems and they quickly change the topic? Or you try to tell them your problems and they suddenly start telling you all about their problems instead? That's not us. We don't run from each other's problems. We run to each other's problems. Or love one another. This is about loving each other as a family. We're stuck with each other and we love it. We want to be there for each other be around each other. And if we don't feel that way, then we want to sort it out. Compassionate. When somebody has treated us badly or when somebody stuffs up badly, even if they've done something really terrible like had an affair, but then they somehow get the courage to walk back through those doors, what do we do? Well, our heart goes out to them like the father in the story with the prodigal son. Our heart goes out to them. We do the same as he did. Or humble. You won't find perfect people here. You'll find people who know their own faults, who know that what comes naturally to us is to desire things that are dark, things that aren't good, things that are selfish and offensive to God. And that has a real impact on how we treat each other, doesn't it? Because we don't think we're God's gift to the world. We think God is His gift to the world. Now, these characteristics of God's family, they perfectly describe us here at TNE, don't they? Well, I've been here a year now, and I've got to say, actually, that I've seen many, many times at TNE when, when we're exactly like this. It's so encouraging, actually. But there are times when we haven't been like this, too. If the people that Peter wrote to were perfectly like this, then he wouldn't have needed to have written what he wrote, would he? But he did need to. They did need to be reminded of it, and so do we. So Peter actually goes on now to give quite a few reasons why they're to do good no matter what. And let's have a really quick look at these different reasons. So in verse 9, we're called to do good no matter what because it's our calling. Have a look at it with me. He says, Do not repay evil with evil 
or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. People will try and tell you that Christianity, that Christians are boring, that Christianity is just so mainstream. But this is not boring. And this is not mainstream. This is radical. Even when someone is doing evil to us, we respond by being, trying to be a blessing to them. This is not something on the extreme edges of Christianity. This is right at the centre of who we are to be. It's our calling. We're called to be like the one who called us. I mean, think about God. God gave Jesus while we were still enemies completely disinterested in Him. God didn't repay our evil with evil, but with a blessing. Peter is particularly talking here as people speak against us as followers of Jesus. As people speak against us, they speak evil against us for being Christians. At those times, we don't speak evil back. Let me give you an example of this. It's a bit of an impersonal example, but, it's, but it still kind of explains it. There's no doubt that Bill Shorten would label me a homophobe. Got no doubt. As Christians, we live by God's definition of good, not our cultures. And so we say it's not good to change the definition of marriage. And we go even further. And we say that it's not good for people to act on homosexual desires because that's what our loving Father makes clear to us in Scripture. Now, Bill Shorten and a whole heap of the people that we live amongst, maybe even you today, are not holding back in accusing us of doing wrong. We hear them say things like, your views on this are inciting hatred, violence, bullying, Suicide, repression. Now, I'm not exaggerating in what I'm saying, am I? That's exactly what's being said, and not just on Facebook, but in Parliament. We're accused of doing serious, serious wrong. So how should I respond to Bill Shorten or to my friend on Facebook or someone in my family or at work? Not with evil, not with insult, but with blessing. doesn't mean I agree with them. What an awful idea that you have to agree with someone to love them. What a horrible world this would be if that was the case. What this means, though, is that I'm to show respect to Bill Shorten, no matter what. I don't rant on Facebook. I don't send him an email, all in capital letters. And it also means that I'm to get on with doing good, no matter what. Let me give you an example of that. A Christian lady that I know worked with someone who was gay. And um, this Christian lady was the only person in that workplace who would have thought that homosexuality is not the way that God wants us to live. As it turned out, though, that the person that she worked with was not only gay, but she just happened to also be a fairly difficult person. I actually know that the, the person that she worked with too. And the individual, she was quirky, which was great, but she could also be short-tempered and sometimes just plain obnoxious. Now, as a result, 
the Christian lady was pretty much the only person in that workplace who treated her with kindness and more than that, was actually a genuine friend. Because as a Christian, she knew that her calling is to do good no matter what. Whether a person is gay, whether a person is obnoxious, it doesn't matter. She's called to show love, and she did. Now, the world might accuse her of wrong for what she believed about homosexuality, but the way she showed love speaks clearer than their shrill objections. It speaks of the real difference that God's calling makes. The next reason that Peter gives for doing good no matter what is also in verse 9. He says, Repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter uses Psalm 34 to back up this idea, which Mario read for us just before. And it basically says this, Do you want to love life? Do you want to see good days? Then turn from evil and do good no matter what. The blessing from God that we inherit isn't that life will always go smoothly for us. Life won't be all happiness and fun and games and unicorns. That's not our blessing. We see it, what it is, in verse 12. Peter writes, quoting Psalm 34, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Later on in Psalm 34, in verse 18, it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. See, the blessing, it's not a trouble-free life. It's so much better than that. It's knowing the closeness of the Lord. It's loving life because God is there alongside us, holding us, attentive to us, bringing us through those troubled times. It's like footsteps in the sand. Do you remember that? Feels a little bit daggy now, a couple of decades on. It's like footsteps in the sand, except the blessing is not that at the end we look back and then realize that God was carrying us through the hard times. The blessing is that at the time of our trouble, we realize He's carrying us. See, doing good no matter what might mean humiliation. It might mean we're accused of wrong. I mean, it could even mean prison. But it always means God's blessing at the same time. God will be close to you. The next reason that Peter gives for doing good no matter what is in verse 13. He says, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? As Christians, we've got to be really careful not to be drama queens. When we get on with doing good, who's really going to have a problem with that? Looking after the poor, bringing in our neighbour's bin, not playing music at all hours, not slacking off at work, not gossiping behind our friend's back, not plagiarising at uni. No one's going to object to these things. The vast majority of the time, when when we do good, people are not going to persecute us for it. But for some reason, we can have a bit of a persecution complex. We jump to concluding that we're being persecuted for being Christian, when the first place we should jump to is to ask ourselves, are we just being persecuted for being rude or obnoxious? Did you notice that living such good lives among people who don't know God 
has got nothing to do with being self-righteous or judgmental, proud, reserved or aloof. That's not living a good life. Sympathy, love, compassion, blessing people, humility, that's living a good life. Now, Peter, of course, knows that very occasionally persecution does happen for doing what's right. And so he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Persecution, it's on the horizon for us as Christians. I think we can all see the storm brewing. But as the pressure grows, we need to make sure, we need to make it clearer and clearer that we're eager for what's good, that we love people and that we love what's good for them. The next reason to do good no matter what is also in verse 14. Peter says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. We do good no matter what because we're not afraid of people. When you think about it, so much of what we do as humans is driven by fear. But we don't work that way. We don't fear what people will say or fear what people will do. I mean, just stop for a second, take a step back and think about that. Sometimes people look at Christians or what God's doing in the world and they think, how weak is that? You know, it started so weak with just 12 people. But God has raised up a people who are never going to raise their fists or never take up a sword. And yet, how do you control people like this? People who don't fear other people. You can't control them. How do you intimidate people who think they're being blessed when you speak evil of them, when you harm them? I mean, at its extreme version. How do you keep going on persecuting people and feeling good about it when as you kill them, they say, Father, forgive them. God knows what He's doing. He has created an unstoppable people, nation, for good. See, we don't fear people. Instead, in verse 15, Peter says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Christ is our Lord. We let Him determine what we do, what we say, and when and how we say it. We trust Him and so we don't fear anyone else. Part of the reason that we're to do good no matter what is so that we might win people for God. Have a look at verse 15. Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Just notice there, the idea is that people already know that our hope is in Jesus. And so, by the way, do your friends know that? Do they know that you're a Christian? Do your workmates know that? Make sure they do. The best thing to do that I've always found is when I start a new job is to let people know within the first week that I'm a Christian. Just drop it in in the conversation. Something you did on the weekend, something that happened at church. Same with friends when you meet someone. Let them know you're a Christian. And if you haven't done that, revere Christ and let them know that you follow Him. Do it tomorrow. See, Peter says they know already our hope is in Jesus, but then they want to know why. Peter doesn't tell us that we have to give a philosophical response here, but we do need to give a reasoned answer. 
Our answer is not to be like this. Yeah, man, you know, I was just like searching and, whoa, it was like I was just needing something more and, yeah, God's cool. That's not a reason. That's a, that's a reason why you shouldn't have smoked pot as a teenager. We need to give a reasoned answer. It doesn't have to be philosophical. Now, sometimes you hear people say things like this. Uh, how does it go? Preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Now, that's like saying to a news reporter, give the news and, if necessary, use words. It's just not possible. It'd be irritating. Peter is telling us here, we need to be ready to answer with reasons, thought out words. And what our lives do is actually give us an opportunity to get to speak. And then what they do is back up what we've just said. The idea is that we're ready and willing at all times to point anyone to Jesus, whether they're hostile or not, whether they're our boss or not, whether we saw the opportunity coming or it just surprised us, whether, whatever the circumstances, we're ready and we're willing to tell them about why we follow Jesus and what they do with that is then up to them and God. Now, Peter's also very clear what this doesn't mean here. It doesn't mean we're rude. It doesn't mean we're forceful. You know, it doesn't mean someone shows a vague interest so we kick down the door and they wish they'd never asked. Look at what he says it means at the end of verse 15. As we give our reasons, we are to do this with gentleness and respect. Let me ask you some questions that just get to the heart of where we're at with this, that that help you to see. Do you fear people? Are you willing to answer anyone? Are you prepared, ready to answer anyone? Are you committed to do it gently, respectfully? And does your life back up what you're saying? Now, really, all those questions, they just come back to one question. And that question is, do you revere Christ as Lord? See, Christ as our Lord, He actually sets us the example that we're to follow. And that's what Peter goes on to say, in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. When we face undeserved suffering, we're to think of Jesus, who also faced undeserved suffering. Can you believe that? There's a parallel between Jesus and us, a similarity. We, who are the unrighteous ones that Jesus brought to God by dying in our place through His his suffering for us, when we then suffer unfairly, we might be, like Him, involved in bringing people to God. Now, Peter isn't saying that we're dying in the place of other people, that we're taking their sin or anything like that. He's saying in the way that we handle ourselves when faced with suffering... That has the potential to lead people to, to Christ, who leads people to God. <clears throat> See, how motivating is that, to do good no matter what? People might be saved because of it. Well, I think I should just say finally here, and um, 
wrap it up, because this last bit gets a little bit hairy with Noah and spirits and baptism. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say finally and then do a Peter and just go on for a little bit longer, but not too much more. Because we don't have time to um, outline all five possible interpretations of this part of Scripture and their pros and cons. What I'm going to do is outline briefly what I think is clearly the best interpretation of this passage. Now, just keep in mind as I'm doing that, that Peter's basic point is that as we speak the message about Jesus, as we live good lives as well, we're like Jesus. And as strange as it might sound, we're like Jesus as He worked through Noah. So follow along on the screen, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase what Peter's saying. So from verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Oh, sorry, and by the way, you can see anything that's a paraphrase in the brackets. See that? That's where I've paraphrased. So verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the realm of the Spirit. And then in verse 19, it would probably be a better translation to say, it was in this spiritual realm that he went and made proclamation to the now imprisoned spirits, these people who are now in hell, because they are those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently for them to repent in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved as they were brought through the water. It's a hard passage, but I think that's the correct way to read it. And Peter's point here is that the Spirit of Christ, through righteous Noah, preached to the unrighteous people around him. Peter's outlining this as an example to us and as an encouragement. It was Christ preaching through Noah. And as we speak the gospel, it's Christ preaching through us. But there's more encouragement because Peter goes on, and again, I'll paraphrase, and he says in verse 21, and this escaping through water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the appeal for a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only did Christ preach through Noah and will preach through us, but also He saved Noah through judgment and He will save us. I love the metaphor of baptism. You know, it's a symbol. Baptism, it points to our escape like this. The waters which threaten us, as we heard in the kid's spot, are God's judgment against our offensive behaviour to God. And the ark which saves us, which some of the kids were able to draw the parallel, is Jesus. Judgment washes over Him in our place, smashes Him, buries Him. And because of Him, we emerge from the waters of judgment completely unscathed. Now, did you notice where the power of salvation is? in what Peter's saying. It's not in the baptism by water, we know that. But it's not even in the appeal 
for a good conscience. It's got nothing to do with us. The power of salvation is through Jesus' resurrection. We already saw that way back at the beginning of 1 Peter. Our living hope. That's our ark. Jesus promises that when we trust in Him, we will be raised up from the dead. We too will be lifted from the waters of judgment. Death can't keep us down. See, in coming to Jesus, we're appealing to God for a clear conscience and we absolutely get it so that we don't need to fear God's judgment. We'll be saved through God's judgment because we're on the ark. And we don't fear those who we're begging to get on the ark. They don't rule our hearts. The one who has our heart Our allegiance, who we live for with a clear conscience, is the one that we read about in verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to Him. We revere the one who has all the authority, the one who has faced judgment for us. We live by Him and we live for Him. And He's the reason that we get on with doing good no matter what unafraid, come what may. But maybe today you don't revere Christ. You know, maybe today you haven't boarded that ark, so to speak. Can I encourage you to do it? What's holding you back? Come and talk to me about it if if you haven't yet, yet boarded the ark. I mean, today of all days, I promise I'll be gentle and respectful. I'm obligated to, right? (laughs) Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at Jesus, the one who has always been your son, all-powerful, our creator, and yet who was willing to lower himself to that awful death on a cross to face your judgment on our behalf, suffering, though he didn't deserve it, so that we who did deserve it didn't need to suffer. Lord, we are so thankful that because of him we are saved from the judgment we deserve. Lord, help us to set him apart as our king always, to live for him without fear of anyone else, knowing that he has all authority and power. Lord, help us to be your family, your holy nation that doesn't fear people. Lord, help us to realise that even when we are accused of wrong, even when people might cause us to suffer for what's right, we're blessed. Lord, help us to do good for your glory, no matter what the situation may be. Lord, we're sorry and you see so much more than we do where we fail at that. Lord, call us back yet again to our calling to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing our next song. <laughs>